Well, hello, everybody. Good to see you. I'm Nate. If I haven't met you, and for those of you in the room, I'm so happy that you're here. Everybody join online. You're going to watch this later. So happy you've joined us as well. And especially if you are in a place we call it being spiritually unresolved, you're not quite sure what you believe, thanks for having the courage to tune in or to come to a service like this. And we hope this is a place where uh, you can make a decision. You, you find an environment where you can make a decision about who Jesus is. That's really what we're all about. So last week we started a new series and we agreed collectively, and I need you to agree with me, that um, we're all gonna put our feet forward and gonna say, Jesus, if you need to step on my toes, you have permission to step on my toes, okay? So we are looking at this reality that our world seems fractured. Our world seems as divided as I've ever seen it in my life. And the subtitle of the series is we're calling it Love in an Age of Outrage. Um, and I, I just have never seen so much outrage. Um, people are furious and angry and, and it's leading to all types of challenges. And last week we looked at these couple of questions. One, we said, what, what am I afraid of, right? Because really, when I'm afraid, I become angry. That's usually a response. So what am I afraid of? And we talked about this, that if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is going to be king, no matter what happens, right? So my fear shouldn't dictate my feelings and my perspective of the future. And then we ask this question, is it possible? This, this is not for culture at large. This is an impossibility. But is it possible for the followers of Jesus to love unconditionally, even when they disagree passionately about certain subjects. And we looked at these passages that walk us through this idea that Jesus said, here's gonna be the difference between my followers and culture as a whole. They are going to love unconditionally. And we even talked about how that began to impact the Roman empire in the first century. Is these followers of Jesus who loved unconditionally even when they disagreed passionately with each other and with things in general in the world or in culture. And then lastly, we asked this question. Can I, am I willing to um, let my lens be the scriptures and my faith determine my ideology? So here's what happens naturally. You and I, we all have cognitive bias. We all have backgrounds. We all grew up. Uh, we all had parental influence. We're all in rebellion from some of our parental influence. And here's what happens. We develop a worldview. We develop a certain set of ideologies. And naturally, this is just what happens. Nobody even tries to do this. We read the Bible. We develop our faith through an ideology. Okay, so I already believe these things. I already value these things. These things are set in stone. And then as we read the Bible, we read through our current ideology. And one of the hardest things to do, but one of the most profound uh, things that a human being can attempt to do who's following Jesus is say, I want to reverse the order. I am willing to let my ideologies be shaped by this book. That this book, as I read it, I read with a new lens. Here's one of the things I was taught to pray uh, just as a little kid, this guy named Pastor Douglas, he said, every time you open your Bible, he taught my fifth grade um, Sunday school class. He said, every time you open the Bible, pray this prayer from Psalms. Oh Lord, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your word, out of your law. And I still pray that because I say, God, I know I have biases. I know what I want this text to say, right? But I pray 
that you would open my eyes in a divine manner, that you would help me to see beyond my bias and to shape my worldview, my ideology from this book rather than the other way around. So here's what I'd like to do today. We're about to turn to a passage of scripture that I think is, is just so profoundly insightful. It is, uh, it is disturbing, but it, it helps us get a view into the motivations of a man who like definitely changed the world, okay? Not many people have really changed the world, but the apostle Paul changes the world. And here's what he's addressing. He's addressing this reality. The human beings... We all share, like even science would say this, like you are genetically nearly identical to somebody who grew up on a different continent, right? We all share all these things. And and here's one thing that we would say from our understanding of the Bible we share is that there is inherent value in a human being. That in the creative creation story, God says this, he, he makes all this beautiful world, the environment around us. And then he says, and here's what he did on the sixth day. He created human beings in his image. And we know from chapter two of Genesis, he breathes in them. So in Hebrew, it's rucha. He breathes into them his spirit or his wind where they become alive. So they're different than all created animals. Is that human beings have this gift of God deposited in their life? Is it conscience? Is it our eternal spiritual nature? Yes, all of those things. So he says human beings are sacred. Life is sacred. But here's what we tend to do. You first see this in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. We tend to separate ourselves along ideological lines, along ethnic lines, and we tend to classify people. We say, well, there are liberals and there are conservatives. There are people with this culture and that culture, this color skin and that color skin. There are, in the Jewish world, here was a big deal. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. And those two are incredibly separate and they they don't interact whatsoever. So reading into that, here's what's gonna happen to the Apostle Paul. He is Jewish. He is a Jewish rabbi. He has been taught from his infancy that the worst thing that he could do was to interact with someone who is not a Jew. In fact, there were laws that said you can't even go into a non-Jewish person's house because if you do, you'll become polluted. If you had to do business with someone who was not Jewish, afterwards, you had to do ritual washing because they polluted you. Okay, so you've seen this, this happens all over the world. This is natural, we, we, we fractionalize, we separate, we say, these are people who are like me. And what's true is, it's easier to love people like you, isn't it? <laughs> they think like me, they act like me, they value the same things I value. And Paul is going to teach us something. Okay? Something that is very, very different than the instincts that you and I were taught, okay? Now, Paul is probably one of the most well-traveled people in the first century. We know he made a minimum of three missionary journeys around almost the entirety of the Roman Empire. From, 
what we call Turkey, to the, the empire went all the way to Great Britain, to, to Portugal, to North Africa. And Paul had gone to, this is how he spent multiple decades of his life. Here's a good Jewish man who had an encounter with Jesus and he spends the rest of his life touring the Roman empire. Here's what happens in Acts chapter nine, that this is the thing that changes his life. He's been aggressively trying to destroy the followers of Jesus. He's a Jewish guy. And now there's these new teachings and this, everybody's talking about Jesus. And he says, I got, I got to end this. I got to end this. So he's imprisoning, he's arresting followers of Jesus. In Acts chapter nine, he's on a road, ready to go tackle some more Christians. Jesus shows up, knocks him backwards. There's a bright light. And Paul says, who are you? And the voice says, I'm Jesus, the one you're trying to destroy. And Paul goes, uh-oh, right? And then here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, okay, Paul, you have lived your life as a good Jewish man and you've lived only with Jews and you've been careful not to associate with any of these other groups. So Paul, here's what I'm gonna do with you. You are going to be my apostle or messenger to the non-Jewish world. What? People who eat pork? I've never even been inside of one of their homes. I avoid non-Jews like the plague. And Jesus says, that's your new assignment. I want you to go find people who are not Jews and I want, them, I want you to tell them the message of Jesus, who he is, what he came to do. And now Paul spends the rest of his life doing this. The book of Acts chronicles these missionary journeys. And can you imagine the cultural adaptivity of a man who can go to Athens and Rome, he can go to Corinth, he can go to any little village, any little hamlet you can imagine. And he travels and he says, hey, I am here and I'm very different than your culture. I was raised in a completely different environment, but I am here to enter into your world and I'm here to tell you the message of Jesus. And this is what Paul does. He just shows up to places and he finds a way to build bridges with people who are far from God, who have completely different ways of thinking. And what does he do? He introduces them to Jesus. He plants a church. And then most of the time he's arrested or chased out of town. And so he has to run. And then he goes to the next village. Completely different culture, completely different set of values, people that you would not naturally love. And he says, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. This is his life. The good Jewish boy who is sent by Jesus to integrate and to build relationships with people who are very different than him. Let's read as Paul describes what is happening in his life. He's writing to the people who live in Corinth. Corinth is a a uh, prosperous city, it's a little bit wild and crazy, it has origins in the Greek empire, a hub of philosophy, but it's just, it's a place where Paul's gone, he established a church and he's writing back to them. And this is what he says. We're gonna get a glimpse into his heart and it's gonna help us as we work through this. What does it mean to live life differently? So 1 Corinthians chapter nine, we'll begin at verse 19. Let's read it together. Though I am free and belong to no one. Paul says, I'm not doing this out of obligation. Nobody has made me do this. I have made myself a slave to everyone. Okay, what is happening here? Who makes themselves a slave, right? 
No, no, you, you want to be liberated from slavery. Paul says, I'm free, but I've made it myself a slave to the people I respect, to the people that I really like and I have natural chemistry with. No, no, he says, I've made myself a servant, a doulos is the word in Greek. I've made myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible to the Jews. This is his heritage. I became like a Jew to win the Jew. To those under the law, the, the Jewish moralists, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. So he says, to all these people I interact with who are consumed with fulfilling the laws of the Old Testament, the books written before the life of Jesus, I related to them in a certain way. Why? So that I could win as many as possible. To those not having the law, that's the Gentile world. I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. Now, let's pause for a second. What is Christ's law? It's mentioned two times in the New Testament, both by Paul. Paul is referring back to John chapter 13, where Jesus looks at his followers and he says, a new commandment I give you. There hadn't been a new commandment in 1200 years. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So Paul says, I'm free from the moral law of the Old Testament, but I am under Jesus's new law to love people the way he loved us. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. So what does that word mean, weak? Well, it has to do with the broken, the disenfranchised, but it has to do with the simple of mind as well. He says, to people who just, they had no religious background, they're simple in the way they think, I became like them. I, I, I spoke in words that they could understand, even though they were a little bit mentally underdeveloped and feeble and hadn't thought through philosophy and religion like I have. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. Okay. I read that and I get a little bit nervous about teenagers or sons and daughters going to college, right? Because it sounds like if you read it at one level, you're like, Paul, the great chameleon, like just, just adapt, do whatever other, everybody else is doing, just fit into the culture, like just throw everything out the window, everything you knew. That is not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I am choosing to live my life differently than this natural world where we fragment and where we find people like us. And here's what we do. We cancel people who are different than us. We don't pay attention to them. We ignore them. We criticize them. If they're that different than me, I can say, you, like, I have no business being in a relationship with you. So here's what Paul does. Paul says, this push to separate, I, as a follower of Jesus, am going to purposefully enter other people's worlds. The last words that Jesus had for his followers was this. Now, Go into all the world. 
and make disciples of all nations. I want you to go and find the sick and bring them health. I want you to go find the people who are in bondage to old ideas of who God was and bring them freedom. And so Paul says, rather than living in my Jewish world, I have gone wherever I've needed to go because this was my mission. So how do we do this, right? Because this is natural for me to find my little corner. This is natural for me to say, no, no, I I relate to these people. I don't understand those people. I push them off to the side. Jesus is saying, could we engage? Could we live life differently? Here's just a couple of things I think Paul says in this passage that help us to live in this countercultural radical way. Number one is this. If you really, really, okay, if you want to live life differently, rather than find your little group and stay there, you have to know that you are free. You have to know that you are free. So Paul starts this whole passage off by saying, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. No, what is he getting at there? Paul had this unique thing. He had Roman citizenship. So he did have a level of freedom. But he's saying this. When Jesus met me, Acts chapter nine, I was in utter bondage to a religious system that said I needed to do more and try harder. That my relationship with God was based upon my moral performance and the tenacity with which I pursued God. And I had this experience where I am now free. I'm free from my past. I'm free from my failures. I understand that my relationship with God is based upon what Jesus did through his life, his death and his resurrection. I am free. I am a forgiven human being. My past no longer defines me. Paul says, I'm free. I'm free. And because I'm free, not only am I free from worry about what God thinks of me, I'm now his child. I'm free from the typical concerns that human beings have. What will people think of me? What if they reject me? What if... What if I try to live my life differently? People say, who do you think you are? He goes, I'm just, I'm just free. I'm free to be who I need to be. I'm free to actually become a servant, to lay my life down. Freedom allows you to be a servant. Freedom allows you to defer, to say, I don't need to win. I am here for you. John chapter 13, Jesus is just getting ready to wash his disciples' feet. It's unbelievably humbling reality. And I love what John says. John says, Jesus knowing, okay, Jesus, here's the three things that Jesus knew. Jesus knowing that the father had put all things under his command. Jesus knowing that he had come from the father and he was going to the father. So here's the three things that Jesus knew. He knew that his authority came from his father. He knew his origins. He came from the father. He knew his destiny. He's going back to the father. Knowing these three things, Jesus wraps a towel around his waist and begins to wash the disciples' feet. When you are free, free from worry about who am I, am I valuable? When you stand and say, listen, I am valuable because Jesus says I'm valuable. It allows you to begin to serve. So, I think Paul's reflecting back to a passage of scripture found in the book of Exodus chapter 21. It's really, we're gonna read it and it seems bizarre to us, 
okay? But you gotta rea- uh, realize that um, servitude and slavery has been a part of human culture for so long, but in the first century and also in ancient Jewish, uh, the ancient Jewish world, slavery was different. It wasn't that you captured somebody and you said, I now own you. There was no bankruptcy back then. And so anybody that got into financial problems, if you borrowed more money than you could pay, if your crops failed and you had purchased your seed from someone, right? Here's what happened. They showed up at your house and they said, you and your children and your spouse all now are my doulas, my servants until your debt is paid. So in the first century, one third of the world are slaves. They're paying off debts to other people. Okay, that was just how you dealt with it. So anybody in the room, if you ever made a bad finance, if you bought a car you couldn't afford when you were 18 years old, because the bank said you could afford it and you couldn't make the payments, they didn't repossess your car. They repossessed you, right? You now come and work for Toyota until we say that it is paid off. We own you. You don't even get money. You just, everything you earn goes towards paying off this car. So here's what Paul's probably referring to, uh, Exodus chapter 21. I wanna read this with you. It is, it is a fascinating passage of scripture. It's, it's about this idea of a bond servant or a slave. But if a servant declares, I love my master. What? Love your master. I, I love my life, my wife, my children, and do not want to go free. Who says they don't want to go free? Well, certain people. It's called a bond servant. Then his master was taken before the judges. There's a court hearing. The judge asked, do you really want to stay a servant? Even though you've, you've paid your time, your bills and debts are paid for? Is that really what you want? They say, yeah. The judge says, okay. He shall take him to the door of the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl, a punch. Then he will be his servant for life. Okay. You know where gauges come from? Every time I see somebody with a gauge, I'm like, hey, who's your master? Oh, not really. So in the ancient, and look at these earlobes. I'd be a prime candidate. I mean, I, I, I could get to the place as a servant where I said, you know what? I don't want to leave. Like I, I, I've developed a relationship with my master. I know I could be free. And so this is what you did. You said, I, I, I want to stay. And they said, okay, like your debt's paid. And they punched a hole in your ear. And when you walked around, the first thing anybody saw about you was, oh, you've chosen to be a servant. You said, the most important thing to me isn't my freedom. I love my master. And you know, Paul refers to himself multiple times as that a bond servant of Christ. Meaning what Jesus did for me makes me free. I could do whatever I wanted in my life. My eternity is secure, but I so love my master that I would join him in reaching the marginalized sections of society. I'd join him in his mission. I would defer my rights and my priorities and my dreams. I'd say, Jesus, if this is what you're about, is going into all the world, of saying, no, I'm not just this label. I see them over there and them over there. If that's what you're about, Jesus, I become a servant 
or a slave to you. If you want to be a servant, it starts with realizing you're free. You're free. You have no obligations. Jesus paid a price that you couldn't pay. But if I truly comprehend that, I say, okay, Jesus, now nothing else matters. Here's the second thing that Paul teaches us. Paul is always looking for the human being. Okay, he's looking for the human being. You and I, every one of us, uh, you're watching, you're in the room, we suffer from cognitive bias, all right? It's often called fundamental attribution error, where we see people and we think, oh, they, uh, they speak this way, they dress this way, they go to this rally, they're a part of this affiliation, they're a part of this group, I know what they're like, Right? It's cognitive attribution error. It's just by observing someone, I see the way you dress, I see the car you drive, right? Like, okay, if you don't believe me, what do you think, now if you drive a Prius, forgive me, but most Montanans, what do you think when you see somebody driving a Prius? You're like, oh, oh, yeah, right. Funniest moment of my life, North Dakota oil fields, I'm there visiting some people, and like breakfast, it's like 60 big pickup trucks and a Prius. And I was like walking into the restaurant, like I'm gonna pick them out. I know I'm gonna pick out whoever the Prius driver is. Cause I assume there's certain things that are gonna go along with a Prius driver, right? Here's what Paul did. He said, I, I, I've learned to do what Jesus did where I don't look and say, hey, you're this, you're liberal, you're conservative, you're religious, you're non-religious, you are this culture, you're that ethnicity. He goes, I don't see that anymore. Paul just looked for the human being. Every time he looked at people, when he came to a new city, a new village, he didn't see Jews and Gentiles anymore. He just looked at a little village. He looked at the city of Athens, the city of Corinth. He just saw human beings made in the image of God. He saw people who were lost and separated from their father. So he saw the human being. If I can see the human being, it changes everything, doesn't it? If I can see the story, you know, I had a great experience the other day. I was um, interacting with somebody and I'll tell you what, like there were just certain things in my mind. They had ornate tattoos all over their body, okay? And um, I've learned, okay, I'm, I, like I don't have a tattoo, but I've learned a great question, great question. I just said, hey, Acted like I was a tattoo person. Tell me about your ink. <laughs> Such a great question, right? They took me through their story. Because every tattoo had something associated with it. It was their values. And you get into somebody's heart and life and you realize this is a human being. They've just chosen to print their story on their body. Look for the human being. The next person that cuts you off, the next person that treats you rudely. Do I think that or do I think that human being made in the image of God who is a terrible driver <laughs> but is lost and separated from their father. Here's the third thing. Paul in this passage tells us the two important things that he's done is that he defers and he initiates. 
defers and initiates. If you want to live your life differently, if you don't want to be involved in the age of outrage, but you say, I want to love instead, you defer it. Paul had his bias. Paul had grown up. He had certain things that he liked, but he said this, you know what? I could, I could defer some of the things I'm comfortable with. I could go to Athens, a city that no good Jewish boy should ever go to. But you know what? I'll lay down some of my preferences and some of my prejudices because I know that there are human beings there who are in need of Jesus. And so I will initiate, I will make the choice to believe that they too are human beings and to defer myself. I'll lay down, this is why he says, I've chosen to become a servant. I've chosen to become a slave. I've laid down the things that I am comfortable with, the things that I would prefer because I realize something is more important than that. I'm not just gonna be in the box that says I'm a Jewish male. Paul's willing to sacrifice so much. In the end of the book of Acts, he's traveling back to Jerusalem and he says this, hey, you know what? I'm gonna have to shave my head because the Jewish people want me to. There's this whole thing that's happening. And so he shaves his head. He doesn't feel like he needs to. He looks at Timothy. Timothy's now his right-hand man. But Timothy is half Jewish, half Gentile. And Timothy, okay, see, here's the big thing that defined people and separated people. Jewish men were circumcised. Every other man in the world was not circumcised. And he finds Timothy and he says, Timothy, in order for you to be able to enter into the world of Jewish people. I've actually written, Paul says, that nobody needs to be circumcised and that's just like, that's not an important thing whatsoever. But he goes, Timothy, if you wanna enter into the Jewish world, we're gonna have an adult circumcision. Timothy goes, serious? Like, why didn't you tell me that beforehand? Well, Paul says, I'll defer and you'll probably need to defer. You might have to do some things that are painful. Say, you know what? That's not worth offending people over. Defer and initiate. Lastly, we have to deal with this question. So Paul, if you become all things to all people so that by all means possible, you might win some. Paul, like how do you keep your moral compass in the middle of that, right? How do you keep from becoming someone you were never meant to be? Like compromising. That's a legitimate question. How do I keep from compromising? Here's the point. Resolute convictions, creative and adaptable methodologies. Resolute convictions. Here's the things I know, but creative and adaptive methodologies. So Paul says, I'm stubborn. I'm really stubborn about certain issues. The early church had to work through this, right? Because it's a whole bunch of Jewish people and then it starts catching the Gentile world. And now you've got people from all different backgrounds and like different moral values that are saying, I want to follow Jesus. And so they come up with what they called a Latin word, the kerygma, which means the essentials, the essentials. I wish I would have figured this out years before. Okay, this has helped me so much. I just hope it helps you. So these are the essentials. So what are the essentials to being a Christian? That asks the question. Is the way you dress? Is uh, the circumcision? They decide, nope, it's not essential. Well, what are the essentials? You know how they define the essentials? 
because there were no New Testaments published yet, because there was no printing press. They said, we're going to create creeds. So the Apostles' Creed, before that, the Old Roman Creed. We're going to create these important things that people can memorize and they can sing. And, they, and we'll say this, these are the most important things. These are at the core. These are the few things that we never compromise on. And so they put into these things, the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus wasn't a good human being. He was actually God in the flesh. They put into these things that the way that someone has a relationship with God is not through their moral, moral performance or efforts. It's through what happened upon the cross. Right? They put into these things that Jesus is one day coming back. These are the early creeds. These are the things like we can't compromise whether you live in North Africa, whether you live in uh, Northern Europe, wherever it might be. These are the things we hold on to. But then the world's complex, right? There are important but non-essential realities. Yeah? So what are those? Well, I'll give you one. If one of the essentials is that one day Jesus is coming back, I bet there's in this room watching online, I bet there's at least 80 perspectives on what it means for Jesus to come back. When he's coming back, pre-mid, post-tribulation, there's a millennium, we're in the millennium. Like people are gonna have a million thoughts about this. These are important, but they're not essential, right? And then outside of that, there are all kinds of things that we can be passionate about, but they're not core at all. I may feel really strongly about these, but these are highly debatable. And this is a lot of theology. Um, trust me, from a guy who's like done the theology route, there's just like way too much time is spent arguing about this stuff. And then outside, there's what I call speculative. And I love this stuff, but I'll never talk to you about it. This is like when I just sit down and read the Bible and my mind goes, what if? <laughs> Could that be? And so I write these things down in a journal and uh, instructions to my kids are, after I die, break open these books and do what you think. Okay? But don't ever tell anybody who wrote it. Because okay? I don't want to embarrass you. I'll never teach this. My job is to teach the gospel, right? And so at this church, we will spend, I hope the vast majority, I hope it's 99% of the time teaching these things. A lot of people want me to teach these things. I don't know for certain. There's godly people who believe different things. Here's what I do know, Jesus is coming back. So here's what you gotta ask. This is what Paul says. I focused on these things. And that allowed me to live my life differently. That allowed me to go to people. Rather than focusing on, hey, you're in this camp, because we create those camps, right? I said, no, that camp doesn't matter. So here's what every one of us has to do. You have to decide what can never be altered. And here's what I'd say. These things, you fight for. You never compromise on. These things, I'd die for. I'm not kidding you. Who Jesus is. But out here, if you spend so much time trying to win these arguments 
about non-essential things, here's what you do. You burn bridges. And I think Paul shows us this. It is never worth jeopardizing a relationship to win an argument about a non-essential subject. So you know what I do? This, this has helped me so much. People come to me and like, I get it. I actually have very strong convictions. It doesn't mean that I'm wishy-washy in any of these things, but I, I can't have conversations except for about this. So when people come and they wanna argue about when Jesus is coming back, if you've ever heard me say this to you, that means I disagree with you. I'll go, interesting. That's interesting. They want more. Like, come on. Like, no, that's, that's interesting. You want to talk about some Calvinist, Arminian stuff? Interesting. Interesting. So we all have to decide what's here. What's here? If I'm stuck to some of these things and I feel like I have to win an argument, I will lose my ability to become all people, all things to all people so that some might be one. Paul says, hold on to the gospel with tenacity. Be fierce about these things and choose not to live in the fringes and in the boxes. Defer Realize you're free and become a servant so that you could win as many as possible. Not win as many arguments as possible, but you could connect as many people with Jesus as possible. Will you pray with me? Jesus, it is absolutely astounding that something written 2,000 years ago from one of the wisest human beings that ever walked the planet, so impacts us today. Because our world is divided. Our world is filled with outrage. And we feel ourselves separating ourselves more and more day after day. And here's what we choose to believe. We choose to believe that Jesus brought a new way of living. It's called the law of Christ. And it's this, love one another is I have loved you. Let's go into all the world. Not just find people that you're like, but go into all the world. It's no longer define people by the camp they're in, by the color of their skin, the language they speak, the news they watch. No, no, no. That's not how we define people. We are looking for lost people. People who are wandering away from their father. And Lord, Teach us to withhold. Teach us to be servants and slaves so that many could be one. We're not interested in winning arguments. We're interested in populating eternity. And Lord, I just want to pray for anybody in the room. Maybe that description of being a slave it resonated with you. We're not just talking about aligning ourselves with team Jesus. That's not it. We're talking about this. We're talking about giving up our rights and our freedom. And for some of us today, we need to put an earlobe against the doorpost. And we say this, what Jesus has done has won my freedom. 
And therefore, mark me, Jesus. I choose to follow you. I lay aside my personal agenda and desires to say I want to be a part of you and what you're doing healing this broken world. Stamp us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for walking through a really, really challenging passage. I, I appreciate your attention towards that. As you go, please know that there will be people up front that you can trust. They'd love to pray for you. The ushers will be in back if you brought a gift. If you said yes to Jesus, you're here in the room or you're online, hit the button if you're online. I want to get you a Bible. If you're in the room, head to the I Have Decided table. Be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus. Let's demonstrate love in an age of outrage. God bless you.